You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Love him or hate him, he was just that kind of guy. Occasionally humble, consistently arrogant, but always true to himself. On stage, he would either warm your heart or he would wrench your stomach. He was a worship pastor with a rock star swagger and a head full of himself. And as is predictably the case with young leaders, things got out of hand quickly. First, things just got weird. Um, At one point, uh, he was so into a song that he actually started taking his clothes off on stage during worship. Really weird. Then things got dark. He actually slept with one of his groupies and was criminally charged with sexual assault. Then when you thought his arrogance couldn't get any bigger or couldn't go any further, his latest book, a national bestseller, made the claim, the unbelievable claim, that God would bless him forever. Like the arrogance, yikes, like the narcissism, just blech. Like, does this guy even know God? Well, the funniest thing is, is you know his songs. We sing his songs almost every week here at North Canton Chapel. You know his poetry. Some of you have even memorized his poems. Because love him or hate him, he's King David. This giant slaying Shepherd boy turned king whose roller coaster faith simultaneously thrills you and makes you sick to your stomach. A man after God's own heart who wrestled with God, warred with God, walked with God, cried with God, and worshiped God. No one has ever sinned more publicly, loved more deeply, or worshiped more sincerely than David. And love him or hate him, there are shades of David in every one of us. This victoriously limping, confidently stumbling life that just says, in short, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So I'm going to get right to it. There are three groups of people listening to me right now. Group number one, you don't know Jesus yet. Not personally, maybe. You're watching online this morning, and that's great. Maybe you've attended North Canton Chapel for a while, or you've been watching these messages, and that's awesome. But you've got some darkness, and you just don't know what to do with it yet. Group number two, you're saved and you're headed for heaven. You know that, but you don't like to talk about your spiritual walk. You don't like to talk about your sin. Maybe you think you've moved past it. Maybe you're just embarrassed by it. Maybe you don't know how to talk about it. Group number three, the rest, you've experienced God shine the warm light of his salvation into your life. You've checked the box of belief, but internally you're still at war. You get stuck. You're thankful, but you're stuck. So if any of those words describe any of your experience, this morning is going to be very, very good for your soul. Because whether we're looking at Old Testament, David, New Testament, Peter, my life, your life, our friends' lives, our own experiences, we need to ask a very courageous question, and here it is. If the gospel is real, why do we have such a hard time? Or if you want to put it another way, how does Christ's perfect work impact my imperfect walk. 
Well, this morning is week four in our series, What is the Gospel? And here's where we've been, just a quick review. Week one, we talked about the gospel as a story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Week two, the gospel as a verb. Pastor Micah showed us that the gospel isn't just something that we believe, it's something that we do. And he gave us these four Gs to gospel our heart. Last week, Pastor Matt brought us this incredible message about the gospel as a mission, this thing that propels us and moves us forward. Now today is the gospel as a point and a process like two sides of the same coin, a point and a process. We're gonna turn this thing over this morning. First, the gospel as a point, and then the gospel as a process. We're gonna do some deep theology. We're gonna talk about some stuff that doesn't normally get talked about. And I hope uh, that you're gonna walk away this morning with some really practical ways for understanding your walk with Jesus moving forward. Because here's something I believe very, very deeply. My imperfect walk starts with Jesus's perfect work. My imperfect walk starts with Jesus's perfect work. So first side of the coin, the gospel as a point. For this, let's head to Romans chapter three. So just a little bit of context before we dive in. The book of Romans is the apostle Paul's theological masterpiece. It's his longest letter, his deepest letter. And it reads like an extended lawyer's briefing, which Paul was. Romans is where Paul spills the most ink, sheds the most tears, and flexes the most muscle. So Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. This was a large church that would have had significant influence. And he writes with one goal in mind, to showcase the power of the gospel to change human hearts and human destiny. Romans is at one point a theological juggernaut. Paul unloads just truth after truth, often one right after another. But it's also beautiful. There's places where he reaches near poetry and how he describes God's love for us. But for us this morning, Romans, especially Romans 3, this is Paul's laser-focused explanation for how the gospel is this point where everything changes. So Romans 3, we're going to start in verse 21. He's about to open up this fire hydrant of theology on us, and he starts with two words. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Here's what he says, but now. Now those words are a game changer. Famous preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He says, there are no two more wonderful words in the whole of scripture than just these two words, but now. Well, why are they so important? What's Paul talking about? What's he want us to see? Paul's about to introduce an idea that we need to get our heads around if we're gonna understand this idea of the gospel as a point. The idea he's gonna talk about is called righteousness. Here's what he says. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, what does that mean? Ever since the fall, that first snake-whispered, doubt-laden apple bite in the garden, we have a righteousness problem. We don't have it. We are sinners, one and all. Me and you, we've all blown it again and again and again. But out of his love for his people, God developed a way to have their sin atoned for. In the Old Testament, it's called the law. Now, the book of Leviticus, I'm willing to bet that most of you probably haven't spent much time there in your quiet time recently. The book of Leviticus spells a lot of this law out. Leviticus 4.35 says something like this. It says, when the offering of a spotless lamb is made on the altar, the priest will make atonement for the sinner and his sin will be forgiven. 
So way long time ago in the Old Testament, you have this image of a spotless lamb atoning for the people's sin. Now that sounds really weird and probably a little gross to us today, but this was the pinnacle of what Paul refers to, refers to as the law. This complex system of rules, over 600 of them, that God gave his people until something more powerful, more permanent, and more complete would come. Hold on to that idea for just a minute. So whenever you read the law in your Bible, that phrase, the law, think the way that God's people would be temporarily counted righteous. So with that as the foundation, here are Paul's words again. This is super important. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now that's incredible. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around how monumental, how paradigm shifting of an idea that actually is. Like a righteousness apart from the law, you can't be serious. How do I get that? Who is that for? Paul continues. He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. You see what Paul's doing here. He's taking all of that righteousness, all of those regulations and requirements that God gave his people in the Old Testament law, offerings and feasts and sacrifices and rituals, and he pins all of that on one person, Jesus. And that changes everything. Here's what he says in verse 23. He says, for all have sinned, that's all of us, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul introduces this game-changing idea, and it's this legal term. It's forensic. It has to do with my standing before God. This big theological term is called justification, and it has a lot to do with this idea of the gospel as a point in our lives. It's really hard for us to understand what this might look like, so see if you can follow me on this one. It's like Paul imagines a courtroom and I'm on trial for all of my sin. Everything that I've ever done against God's law is laid wide open and public and it's read aloud. How I've been selfish, how I've chosen what felt good over what is good, how I've loved myself rather than God, how I've eaten the fruit, how I have stiff-armed God, how I've messed up. Everything's brought up. And as witness after witness from my life brings up evidence against me and submits it to the judge, that's a horrifying picture to imagine. Think of how you'd feel if everything from your past that you're ashamed of was read publicly. Every person you've ever hurt comes out and said, here's what this is like. Here's the real Brandon. That's horrifying. And as charge after charge is being read, the outlook is bleak and the courtroom is collectively nauseous from my selfishness laid bare. A voice in the back boldly interrupts and says, stop, I'll take it, all of it. And before I can even raise my hand to question, the gavel falls trial over. I'm free to go and somebody else pays the fine. How does that happen? Christ alone justification. Theologian Millard Erickson puts it this way. He says, the holiness of God requires the payment of the penalty and the love of God provides the payment. That is why the cross is so important. Where God's unquestioned holiness meets God's unrelenting love. 
There's an old song uh, that came out years and years ago. It's from the Welsh revival. It's called Here is Love. And there's a verse that goes like this. It says, on the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. That's justification and it happens the instant that you believe. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. The moment you say, I'm trusting Christ and Christ alone for my salvation, that declaration of justified is an instantaneous legal act. Happens at a point in time where three things happen, where God sees my sin as forgiven, he counts Christ's righteousness as belonging to me, and then he declares me righteous in his sight. That's unthinkable. And according to Paul, it's available for anyone who believes. Justification, the instantaneous legal act of God where a guilty sinner is declared righteous. It's not an acquittal. It's not like God just sweeps it under the rug. Somebody pays, it's just not me. Now let's come down out of the clouds for a minute because all of that theology is very interesting. But what does it have to do with what really happens day to day? What's the point? I want you to know all that because I want you to rest in the truth that your salvation rests on Christ's work, not yours. You need to know that your imperfect walk starts and rests on and draws its strength from Christ's perfect work. So this doctrine of justification, I want to hang here for a minute before we move on to the gospel as a process. This doctrine of justification helps to speak against four lies that the enemy wants to give you. And I think it does us well at this point to say we need to name them so that when we hear them, we can send them back to where they come from. Here's lie number one. You need to save yourself. Okay, this lie is super common and maybe you've been tempted to believe it. It sounds like this. It's like, well, God, I want to help out in some way. God, I, you know, I know I've done some bad stuff, but I've done some good stuff too. So can we just count the good stuff? And maybe like at the end of my life, like 51%, 49%, if it's 51%, I'll be good. God, I, you know, I I can't get as far as Jesus, but maybe I can help out just a little bit. I understand that impulse because that would make me feel really, really good um, just to be able to help out in some way. Nothing um, offends my sense of pride as deeply as the idea that there is nothing that I can contribute to my salvation. But that's the gospel. So here's the gospel truth. If I'm drowning and somebody throws me a life preserver and I grab it and I say, man, I'm so thankful I saved myself. That's terribly inconsistent. Grabbing a hold of the life preserver is an act of desperation, not an act of strength. Where does the strength come from? From the one who gave it to me, Jesus. So follow me. If I can add anything to Christ's righteousness, and that can mean good works. It could mean lighting a candle. It could mean praying to the saints. It could mean burning off some sins in purgatory. It could mean just good behavior. If I can contribute at all, I'm basically saying Christ isn't enough. And that's a problem. I would immediately devalue the cross and I would elevate my own value. Do you see the problem? Either Jesus is sufficient for all of it or he isn't sufficient for any of it. Either he is a complete sacrifice or an incomplete sacrifice. Either he can do everything or he can do nothing. 
Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite theologians, puts it like this. He says, the only thing that I contribute to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. And I love that because it speaks to the truth that everything else is Jesus. And that's why the cross is so profound. You do not need to save yourself because you can't. So that's the first lie. Second lie, you're not good enough for God to love you. This one's common too. And I know the enemy loves to whisper this. And maybe even this morning you've heard this before. It sounds like this. You've messed up too much. You've made too many mistakes. You're not good enough for God to love you. And when the enemy whispers those lies, do you know what you can tell him? And here's the gospel truth coming roaring back again. You can say, you know what? On my own, you're 100% right. But in Christ, you couldn't be more wrong. On my own, I'm lost, but in Christ, I'm redeemed. On my own, I'm hopeless, but in Christ, I'm made new. On my own, I'm unrighteous, but in Christ, I'm free. And he calls me his child. Hear me, when it comes to your identity, the enemy says, prove it. And your heavenly father says, receive it. Were it not for the cross, justification is just wishful thinking. But because of the cross, justification is a reality. In the cross, the love of God motivated Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. In the cross, my imperfect walk rests on Christ's perfect work. And so, yeah, you're not good enough to be loved by God, but that doesn't matter because in Christ, he sees you hidden in righteousness of Christ. Line number three. It wasn't dramatic, so it didn't happen. Now, thinking on your conversion experience, this point in your life, a lot of us believe this lie that says it wasn't dramatic, so it didn't happen. This is personal for me, and I imagine it might be personal for some of you too. Um, I used to envy the guy with the dramatic story, right? I don't have a very dramatic conversion story. Um, but I envied the guy who used to tell the story like, man, I was driving down the road. It was like midnight and I hit a telephone pole and I ended up in a ditch. I was covered in mud and I said, Jesus save me. And he did. And my life has never been the same since. And, da, 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 da. and I'm like, wow, that's incredible. And that's not my story at all. And so over the years, Satan actually used that to get his claws into my life a little bit to help me unthink my own conversion. And I started to ask questions like, well, do I really believe this? Like I didn't have this, you know, it was 1027 at night and this happened and I never had that. Does that mean that this point never happened for me? Am I really saved? So here's a piece of wisdom that somebody once shared with me and I want to pass it on to you. Here's the gospel truth underneath this lie. It's less important that you can say when you believed and it's more important that you can say that you believe. It's less important that you can say when, and it's more important that you can say that. Because when it comes to faith stories, this point in time in our lives, there's no one size fits all because we've all got different stories. We're different people. The New Testament bears this out. I think of Jesus and the woman at the well. One of the first stories of conversion in the New Testament, he has this conversation with her. Maybe that's you. You had a conversation with somebody. I think of the woman caught in adultery. It's this desperate situation where the crowd is ready to chuck stones at her, but she just clings to Jesus because it's all that she's got. I think of Peter, right? He's got this on again, off again relationship with Jesus, right? Like he, he follows him and then he denies him and then he gets his theology wrong and then he comes back and you're just like, Peter, where are you on this whole thing? And maybe that's you. You've got a wavering story. I think of the intellectual Ethiopian eunuch who was reading something. He was reading scripture. He didn't even know it. 
And then he had mental light bulbs go off and some dots connected. And he's like, oh, I need to follow this Jesus. I think of the Philippian jailer, this guy who was supposed to keep watch over Paul. And then the jail busts and jail bars break open. And this guy's going to lose his job and his life. And he eventually just says, what must I do to be saved? And then Paul introduces him to Jesus. Why does the New Testament present us with such different and seemingly divergent justification conversion stories? Why can't we have this like nice, neat and tidy package? Answer, because we are not a neat and tidy package. Our lives are messy and so are our stories. For some of us, he used catastrophe, cancer, divorce, death of a loved one. He used those things in your life to draw you to himself. For others, it was a conversation with your mom or your dad when you were little. For others, it was reading a book or coming to a a sense of consensus in your own mind about who this Jesus of Nazareth was. Why don't we have it neat and tidy? Because we're not neat and tidy. It's less important that you can say when you believe and more important that you can say that you believe, even if you can't pinpoint a day and time. So if you've ever been tempted to believe line number three, be encouraged. Walking an aisle, signing a book, or checking a box doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Your imperfect walk starts with his perfect work. Line number four. And this one to me is probably the darkest of all, but we need to name it. Maybe the enemy is trying to convince you that you can't be saved. And let's just zoom out for a little bit. Maybe you've been watching this series the last couple of weeks, or you've been checking out North Canton Chapel, or you're watching online today, and this just showed up on your news feed. Somebody shared it, and you hear all this stuff, and God is stirring something in your heart, but there's a conflict. And the enemy might be whispering to you, hey, all this stuff, this is for somebody else. It's not for you. This church thing, this isn't for you. You're too far gone. So let me be clear. We're not about church marketing, um, although I think North Canton Chapel's great. We're not about recruiting fans or upping likes on Facebook, although maybe there's some merit to that. But what I am deeply interested in is you knowing and experiencing the love of God through the cross of Christ. And if the enemy rears his head and says, you're too far gone, here's the gospel truth. God's grace is available to anyone who's humble enough to admit that they need it. And that's available for you. That's what God's word says. That's how Paul brought this up. He said, for all who believe, there's no exclusions. We're all on equal playing field before God. The gospel is the great leveler. And so if that notion is humming in the back of your head that you can't be saved, let me encourage you with three gospel truths just really quickly. God loves you, he is chasing you, and he is relentless. And so maybe you've never said, Jesus, I'm yours. And this idea of a point is a little lost on you. So before we turn the corner into our next portion where we talk about the gospel as a process, let me ask you a question. If you've never said those words, Jesus, I need you, what's holding you back? What are you waiting for? It can be really simple. Sounds like this. It says, God, I admit that I'm a sinner. God, I ask for your forgiveness. God, I accept that Jesus is enough. That's what justification sounds like. Your today can be forever different going forward, starting right now. Your eternity can be completely different starting right now. God loves you. He is chasing you. And he is relentless. So all of that is the gospel as a point. Now, everything I've said is 100% true. This is the gospel as it stands. 
this point in time where a sinner is declared justified. This is the gospel as it stands, but it isn't always the gospel as it feels, is it? Right? We've got King David. We've got Fisherman Peter. We've got you. We've got me. You may have had this point, but now what? And so as we turn the coin over from a point to a process, I want to show you a picture uh, because I think this picture is way more powerful than my words can ever be. So this picture, this is a sculpture by artist Dean Allison, and it's called Born Again. And here's what you're looking at. This is a sculpture of a man. He's almost violent in his posture. He's standing up with his left hand wrapped around his right wrist. And you can see the top half is made of this shining, almost white crystal material. But take a look at the bottom half. It's like he's working to peel away this bronze outer shell. He's peeling it off of his wrist and he's peeling it back from his chest. It's like he's becoming who he really is. This. This is how the gospel sometimes feels, at least for me. It's a point, yes, I've been changed internally, but it's also a process. There's something new and deep and brand new and true in me. I'm free, I'm clean, I'm innocent. All those things that we just talked about. I've got no shame, I've got nothing to fear. There's a newness that's transformative from the inside out, but it doesn't feel that way. There's this old stuff that's still like clinging around. Anger. Lust, pride, envy, you pick your poison. We've all got them. We are still peeling off the bronze, aren't we? And if you feel like that, I don't think I'm alone. So if this gospel is a point, which it absolutely is, we need to turn our attention to another, probably more experiential reality, the gospel as a process. Pastor Micah introduced this idea two weeks ago when he talked about how we need to gospel our hearts. While I am positionally saved, there's another angle where I'm practically being saved. Now, before we get into this, a few things that this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that Christ's work was inefficient or he somehow didn't get the job done or it was incomplete. This also doesn't mean that, well, Jesus did the point part and now the process is my job. I'll take over in my own strength. It also doesn't mean that I can never go back, that somehow like, you know, I can undo the work of Jesus in my life. Here's what this does mean. The gospel as a process means that I am becoming in practice who I am in position. The gospel as a process means that I am becoming in practice who I am in position. And for this, I want to go back to the Apostle Paul. This time, the book of Colossians chapter 2. Now, Paul, like we said, he's a lawyer and he understands the language of courtroom dynamics, but he's also a pastor. And so he understands what it's like to be a sheep following a shepherd. Out of all of Paul's letters, Colossians features the work of Jesus probably most succinctly. If Romans was like this 24-ounce porterhouse steak, then Colossians is like the filet mignon. It's really tight, it's really small, but it's really, really compact and to the point. So Colossians, really, really quick, after spending the whole first chapter talking about this hymn to Christ, he also talks about his own struggles and what those have to do with walking with Jesus. And then in chapter two, verse six, he says this incredibly easier said than done word. Here's what he says, Colossians chapter two, verse six. He says, therefore, so in light of everything I just told you about how awesome Jesus is, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in the faith, or built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, this may just me. 
Um, but those two verses are two of the toughest verses to actually apply in the entire Bible. Why? Because they rest on two verbs, and maybe you caught them. First, he says, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. That first one, just as you received him. Paul has something past tense in mind. This is something that has happened. The gospel point that we just talked about. Somewhere in the rearview mirror, the Colossians made a decision for Jesus. But then there's the second verb. He says, so walk in him. Now, this is an imperative. It's a much different deal. This has happened. This has yet to happen. It's one thing to walk an aisle, check a box, raise your hand. It's another thing entirely to live every day of your life with Jesus as the Lord of your life. So Paul's got this point in mind where the Christians in Colossae were justified. They confessed Christ. They were made new. Hell canceled. Heaven guaranteed. And then it's like Paul pulls up the chair, lowers his voice, puts his elbows on the table, and he says, guys, there's more. And maybe this is just me, but I kind of want to go, like if it were only that easy, Paul. We received Jesus with simple, childlike joy. And then now the hard work really starts. You go like, here's the deal, Paul. This is 2020. This is the year that ate my theology. I received him a long time ago, but now walk in him? This is so hard. But this is the crux of the issue, isn't it? Maybe that you've received Christ. Maybe you can remember that time. But then you hear this word, walk in him. It's so hard because we take one step and then we stumble and then we fall. If it's true that my imperfect walk rests on Christ's perfect work, what does it even look like to walk in him? Paul gives us three words. He says, rooted, built up, and established. Good words. What do they mean? And so um, for this, I want to round out our time today by showing you a tool that was crafted by a guy named Jeff Vanderstelt. He's an author and he's a pastor. Um, and he wrote about this tool in a book called Gospel Fluency. And um, it's one of the most helpful tools for understanding the gospel as a process. And so we're going to reach back even to week three, week two, and week one in this series, pull it all together. Um, I use this tool in counseling. I use it in discipleship. And I use it in my own personal time with God. It's called Root Then Fruit. And uh, we're going to go over here to the whiteboard. I'm going to show you what this looks like. So here's how root then fruit looks. So first off, our lives are like a tree. Paul talks about that. He says we need to be rooted and established. So let's take this idea. Here's a tree. Not a very good tree, but you get the idea. Um, and so what we have on our tree is we've got fruit that blossoms on our tree in our life. Naturally, these fruit aren't very good. All right. And so these fruit can take the form of like fear anxiety, anger, lust. They call them the fruit of the flesh in the Bible. And these things just grow on our tree naturally. They're just part of who we are without Jesus, without the gospel in our lives. Now, what happens in our life a lot of times is people go, hey, you shouldn't be feeling that way, right? It feels like a slap on the wrist. Hey, don't feel angry. Hey, don't lust. That's bad. Hey, don't envy. And what we're really doing there is just behavior modification, all it is is, hey, that fruit shouldn't grow on your tree. So what happens though after a while, you know this, especially if you've been alive long enough, some of that fruit just grows right back. And so our lives become this consistent game of how can we manage this fruit on our tree? How can we lop it off quick enough? So let me show you a different way of thinking about this. This up here is called behavior. 
But what we know and what Paul is calling us to here is something deeper, something underneath the surface called belief. And here's what I want to encourage you to think about this. If your tree is growing oranges, what kind of tree is it? It's an orange tree. If your tree is growing apples, what kind of tree is it? It's an apple tree. Our behavior has its roots down below. All this fruit that shows up here is rooted in belief, right? And so we don't need to correct our behavior. We actually need to correct our belief. This is what we mean when we say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's something underneath us that isn't believing the right thing. And so we want to talk about this. How do you get rid of this fruit of the flesh in your life? And how do you actually grow the fruit of the Spirit? So I want to give you a couple of things. First off, there's this first step that we need to talk about. I'm just going to use this word really quick. And it's called confession. Confession. This is naming what is untrue in my life. Naming what's untrue. And here's how we start. We start by asking a couple, or by, by naming a couple of things. First off, we name who I am, right? And this one's usually pretty accessible for us. We say, man, I'm angry, or God, I'm frustrated. We say these things that we feel right at the top. It's usually the fruit that's blossoming on our tree. But then we say something second. What God has done. Now this is where this gets really honest. If I'm gonna say, well, God, I'm angry. Well, what has God done? I can say, well, God hasn't delivered on a promise for me. God's holding out on me. God's not shown up in the way that I wanted him to show up. God is not giving me the best. And this is where this gets a little bit hard is you got a third step. Well, what does that mean about God? You've got to name who God is. Now, this is not the time for you to be pious. This is the time for you to be emotionally honest. You don't need to sound religious. You need to actually name these things in your life. And so if you're going to say, God, I am angry. And I'm angry because you're holding out on me. And you're holding out on me because you're not good. That's some pretty heavy theology. Now, I know when I say that, you're like, oh, I could never say that. But that's what confession is, right? Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. No, they're just not believing that God is good. That's the problem. So who are, who are you? What has God done? And then who is God? Now, as you move through this, this is confession. But now you're going to come down under here. I'm going to give you a second step. This is repentance. Down underneath where we say, okay, God, I recognize that those things are not true of you. God, I'm wrong. I agree with you that everything I just said about you is not correct. You are good, right? You are great. These things that Micah gave us a couple of weeks ago, these four G's that were presented either in the gospel primer or the gospel fluency book that I recommended to you. These things are absolutely true. Everything that you know about God, this is repenting of these things that are not true in your life. And so you've got to take this confession, be super honest about it, right? Confession takes two words. I just mentioned them. Emotional honesty. You've got to be honest when you're over here. This is not the time to sound religious and pious. It's not going to do you any favors. So as you come down here and repent, now you've got to work your way back up. So if we've got confession, repent. We've got this third stage, which is simply gospel. Gospel. Now here's the way this works. Now you work from the bottom up. You ask yourself, who God is. 
So you say something like this, God, I, I, I thought that you weren't good. I thought you were holding out on me. The truth is you are good. God, you give me what I need. God, and then the second question is, what has God done? This is, God, you've given me your best. You've given me your son so that I could be satisfied. God, you've not, hold, or you've not held back anything. You've given me everything I've ever needed. And then beyond that, even things I didn't need, but I wanted, God, because you're a good father to me. Now, what does this mean now? who I am. All of a sudden, I'm not angry. I'm not frustrated. I'm a beloved child of the King. I am loved by my heavenly Father. And see how this process works? So as you work up from repentance, you're actually preaching the gospel to yourself. And then after time, what happens, it's really pretty cool, is all this other bad fruit starts to fall off your tree. And then other fruit from right belief starts to blossom on your tree. And your tree starts to look much differently. So let's run this with another grid just quickly. Somebody says, boy, I see there's lust in my heart, God. Well, who am I? I'm lustful. God, you haven't given me what I wanted. God, you've held out on me because God, you didn't give me somebody who was perfect for me. God, those are not true. God, what is true, you care for all of my needs because God, you give me everything because you're good. And so I am your child. This is gospeling. And you can do this over and over again in your life. This is called gospel fluency. And it's how we do this multiple times a day. This is not a one and done thing. Anytime you're tempted to sin, anytime you find yourself sinning, walk through this three-step process, confession, repentance, and then gospeling. Because all this gospel fruit is rooted in gospel belief, gospel roots. Well, David... Peter, you and me, this endless parade of victoriously limping, confidently stumbling saints. What do we do with all this? At the beginning of our time together this morning, I mentioned three groups and I wanna hit them again real quick. Group number one, you don't know Jesus yet. You haven't had that point in your life. And so all this process stuff is just behavior modification for you. Group number two, maybe you know Jesus, but you're not even walking with him. You're just, you're scared to, you don't know how to. Maybe you're just not interested. Group number three, you're trying to walk with Jesus, but man, are you stuck? You keep getting stuck in the same ruts over and over again. And for each of you, regardless of which group you put yourself in, I've got the same words for you. If you don't know Jesus yet, remember his perfect work. It's enough to save you and set you right with God. If you do know him, but you're not walking with him, remember his perfect work. It's enough to get you on the right track, to wake you up and to get you living on mission for him, to make the gospel real in your life. Now, for those of you that are trying your best to walk with him, but you're just stuck, same word, remember his perfect work. It isn't about your strength. It's not about what you can do, how good you can slap your own wrist and psych yourself out of something. Your imperfect walk starts and rests on his perfect work. Last word for all of us today. If God is doing something in your heart and he very well may be calling you to do something, let me encourage you, give you one final challenge. Tell somebody about it. Sometimes that inward movement just demands some kind of an outward expression. So it could be a spouse, a friend, or a family member. Tell somebody what God is doing in your life. If you'd like to share something with us, just a prayer request um, with us as a staff or your church, 
that's available for you. I want to encourage you to visit nchapel.online slash prayer. That would be our privilege to pray with you and for you about what God is doing in your life. Remember, your imperfect walk rests on Christ's perfect work. Let's pray together. God, I know that these are hard truths to apply to our lives. We're just tired. We're tired of not feeling good enough. We're tired of failing. We're tired of wondering. So God, would you wake us up and call us to live out your gospel in your word? God, if there's people who are listening right now who don't know you, God, I pray that by your spirit, that you would arrest them right where they are and you would let them know that there's nothing more meaningful than squaring their account with you. And they could accept Jesus alone. Stop trying so hard, but to rest in the fact that we are powerless. Father, we love you. We say thank you for the cross that gives us this justification, but then also gives us the power to live in you. Bless us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.